We want to begin tonight by dealing with the subject of beguilement. And you have a tab in your manual there entitled Beguilement. If you'll recall, at the basic seminar, we talked about beguilement just in its application to the thought life. And yet beguilement is Satan's basic underlying system of operation. And I believe that you and I as Christians, as we're told to be not ignorant of Satan's devices, uh, have that responsibility to know how Satan operates, to have that discernment. Now, I trust that you'll feel free in this seminar to ask questions. Uh, I hope that we have some good dialogue with one another. I'm going to try to leave some time at the end of each session to ask questions. Uh, you may have an insight or an illustration that was real significant and you feel would just add uh, further insight because one of the things we're going to do as we go through the week is we're going to begin to compile and gather illustrations so that we can begin to build a resource and a reservoir. When we begin to share, first of all, it has to come out of our personal life. If when you and I begin to share a truth of God's word, and we say, well, Larry said, or I learned in the seminar, or well, my pastor said last week, or well, another interesting thing that my Sunday school teacher pointed out, the minute our approach is second or third person, we have lost our credibility and authority. And so we need to know how to effectively share what God has actually been teaching us through the experiences that we've been going through. And Scripture is so clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that those things that we have gone through and in which God has been sufficient and met our needs are, in fact, in part, intended by God to be a resource to help others in the same kind of problems. For he says, Thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our Father and the source of all mercy and comfort. And he gives us comfort in our trials, so that we in turn can give the same sort of strong sympathy to others and theirs. Experience shows that the more we share Christ's suffering, and we're going to talk about suffering a little later, the more we're able to give of his encouragement. And this means that if you have to suffer trouble, as we have done, then like us, you also will find the comfort and encouragement from the Lord. Now, there's a right and a wrong way to share illustrations, share the significant things out of our lives that God is teaching us. And someone can easily make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, all Larry's doing or all someone else is doing is just standing up there and talking about themselves. I used to stand up and talk about myself, and when I'd get home, my wife would be mad. You know why? Because I was sharing the wrong information. I wasn't sharing the insights that was teaching what God was teaching the two of us corporately. 
And way back in the early days, all of my illustrations made me sound like a hero and put my wife in a bad light. Well, wives, quietly, if you have a quiet wife, if you have a loud wife, they just outspokenly <clears throat> confront you with those kind of things. And you see, the Lord wasn't getting the glory. I recall one man just starting out. He was all excited. And he got up and thinking that he was going to be empathizing with people. He got up and he said, you know, my wife and I used to have such terrible marriage problems. I used to pray and ask God to kill her. Now, he thought that that was going to cause people to respond. Well, they didn't. They reacted. You know, other wives are wanting to look up at their husbands. You ever pray like that? <laughs> and I mean, in just one swift blow, he lost his audience. Now, you see, if that individual had said, you know, we have gone through some deep waters, and our marriage sometimes had hit bottom, and I used to try to think of all different ways to get out of the marriage. Well, it's not uh, an improbability that most of us, at one time or another, or in one situation or another, that thought crossed our mind. And you see, an individual can identify with the latter, but they would react to the former. And so there's a resource of information that God has already taught us here. How many here can think of a personal illustration where God has proven himself in the application of one or more of his principles that you've learned in the seminar? Can we? Can you think of it? Okay. Now that's a tremendous resource to draw from when we begin to minister to others if the first illustration comes out of the authority of our lives. And then I begin to share. Another individual just shared with me how that they had lost their son and they gave him back to the Lord and dealt with that situation. Uh, in New Hampshire, these are this is an actual illustration, in New Hampshire just uh, two weeks ago, the very first night of the seminar, a pastor comes up to me He'd set his, house, his car on fire so he could collect the insurance. And yet the Spirit of God so convicted his heart, he didn't even hear the rest of the seminar. He said, what should I do? And I told him. And he came back the next night and had already contacted the insurance company, told them what he had done, asked how much he owed. He wanted to make amends. He's scared to death. But you know, God honored that. Warner Robins, Georgia, two weeks ago. A lady comes up to me. She had attended the seminar a year ago. She's 72 years old, and she said, you know, last year at the seminar, God convicted me about obeying my husband. And after 51 years of marriage, I decided to start obeying him. And she was telling me what a hard, hard year this past year was. Or another man came up and said, you know, at the seminar last year, the Lord brought to my mind a girl from my younger years, 37 years ago. My mother died two months ago, and I said, Lord, you know, I wouldn't know how in the world to contact this gal. I don't even know who she married or anything. If it's that important to you that I make that right, 
you'll have to get me in contact with it. Well, his mother passed away two months ago. He said he was walking into the funeral home and he had sat down and the preacher had just come up to address the podium and he said, I turned around for some reason and I looked around to the back and I saw this girl. And I said to the pastor, no, would you hold up the service just a minute? And he said, I went to the back and he said, I went to this gal and he said, do you remember me? And she said, yes, I do. He said, if I were to apologize to you, would you know what I was apologizing about? She said, yes, I would. And he said, well, I want to ask your forgiveness. And that lady forgave him. And he said, I came back and then went through my mother's funeral with a clear conscience. Well, you see, that gets exciting. And that becomes a tremendous encouragement when it's first out of our own life and then we have a resource to draw from. And one of the things that we want to do this week is to do that very thing. And I believe that you and I need to be aware of what is happening, what Satan is doing in this world, because we're getting confronted on a daily basis with, with, with an onslaught where I find that many of us as Christians are losing our perspective. We're becoming immune to some things that at one time were wrong. And so, some of the characteristics of Satan. Number one, we're told that Satan is an accuser of the brethren. Satan is the source of gossip and discord. Now, when we hear those attitudes, perhaps other scriptures come to your mind. Blessed is the man who what? Who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor what? sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Six things doth the Lord hate, and seven is an abomination to him. What's the seventh? He who sows discord among the brethren. In other words, if we could have God come into our very presence, and you and I could verbally ask him, what is the most abominable thing in the heart of God, out of all the sins that you could list, what would he answer? He who sows discord among the brethren. Is it a problem in the churches today? Hmm? Almost totally overrun. And most people don't know how to unravel it. There are a lot of people who are caught up in that critical spirit and those other types of problems who even want the freedom and they don't know how to get it. Second, we're told that he walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This is what I listen for almost every time I read the newspaper. Because there is a temptation on our part as Christians to react to superficial problems, to the surface causes. I think one of the greatest devices of Satan is to get Christians to fight causes. One of the biggest devices of Satan. Did Jesus Christ ever fight a cause? Huh? Was the Roman government known for its Christian virtues? You know, Jesus never took on the Roman government. The disciples never went around fighting causes. 
And yet how many causes are being fought today, quote, in the name of the Lord, and that emotional energy which is being expended down those avenues, Satan is totally content because we are now sidetracked from the mainstream of what God called us to do. And as long as you're sidetracked, we'll never get to the real heart of things. Now, a roaring lion is an actual animal in a pack of lions. He is the old lion who is too old to catch the prey. So what does he do? He goes upwind. So the prey detects the scent. Then he comes charging out at the prey, which causes the prey to flee into the hands of the waiting young lions. Now what we're, what we're talking about here is that we have a temptation to start reacting to the superficial sins rather than the real cause. We can preach against alcohol, drugs, sex. We can preach against those things. We can try to convince an atheist that he shouldn't be an atheist or an agnostic that God really is personal. But the real issue is not the drugs or the alcohol or the sex or the atheism or the agnosticism or the perversion. The real question is what has happened in that individual's life that has caused him to adopt one or more of these types of avenues to compensate for the problem. And so we need to be aware that if Satan can get you and me preoccupied with secondary issues, again, he's won a big battle. The third thing, we're told that he will continually tempt us to disobey the word. He will constantly get us to redefine scripture. Now, this is a tremendous threat today. It's a tremendous threat in the pulpit today. And the pressures, you see, come on us in such a subtle way. See, it doesn't leave much room for definition when Scripture says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But along comes this type of situation. I'm the pastor of a church. I'm playing golf with one of the deacons. Dear friend have a lot of tremendous fellowship together. I'm aware that he's having a problem with his daughter. We've even prayed about it. We've been concerned about it. And we get out on about the third hole, and he stops me, and he says, you know, Larry, I need to tell you something. We just found out yesterday that Susie's pregnant. And she's pregnant to this uh, this fellow I told you she's been going with. He's not a Christian. We've been trying to talk her out of it, or we've been trying to get her to do something else, and we don't seem to have been successful. We weren't successful. And, of course, my wife is so upset she's beside herself, and, uh, you know, we're already embarrassed. And, uh, you know, I know that it's just not the rule of thumb, and I certainly wouldn't want you to go against your convictions, but we really would appreciate it if you'd marry her. You don't know what else to do. Now, do you know how human 
all of us are as creatures. We are as human as everybody else. It is really tough, really tough to look someone in the eye and tell them you love them and I would really like to, but I can't. Now you see, once I do that, now I have to go back and explain that that verse doesn't really mean what that verse said. Because I'm going to be confronted from now on by people. See, it isn't some great big overt thing. Most of the things that get us into our problems get us there because they're very personal. It's very difficult to say no. It is really hard to read Romans 13.8, which says, Oh, no man anything, and say that that's what it means. Especially if you owe $12,000. And you aren't even buying a house. I had so many explanations for that. And I could go through all kinds of scriptures that I would define and exegete theologically, but when you got down to the real practical aspects of it. No, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Don't go to bed angry. Do you know how many times I have gone to bed and I was too mad and I figured that since it started at night, I got another 24 hours to deal with it. And so, you know, Satan just gets you and me to redefine the word. If you went back and studied the temptation of Jesus in each situation, it was a subtle redefinition. Just a, a subtle emphasis on the wrong thing. He's the prince and the power of the air. In other words, there is a system that Satan controls, and this system is what is operating. And the whole world is made up of this system. That's why you and I are honestly pilgrims coming on through. And when you and I start to take God seriously and we start to follow his principles that are diametrically opposed to Satan's system, that is what sets the stage for you and me as a Christian to suffer. And you know through whom the suffering comes? Other Christians who don't buy your kind of dedication. You're fanatical. You've gone to the extreme. Very seldom does the suffering come from the non-believing world. Persecution comes from the non-believing world. When you're persecuted for righteousness sake. But the suffering, most of the suffering, starts stop and think of where the hurts have come in your life. Most of the hurts have come in our life from a loved one or a Christian brother or a set of circumstances that I couldn't control and now I've got these problems going on inside. Well, now the way Satan works in this world system is through the heart of a man, through his heart. And in Jeremiah 17.9, we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? 
Now, this word deceitful has four emphases. And it's the way, the it's the impulsive and subconscious reactions that are constantly functioning in our lower nature. Now, some of these things are going to be real important. In fact, I, I really believe that a lot of these insights that we're starting on tonight, later on, are going to kind of unfold like a flower. When we get into the prerequisites for effectively communicating these things. Because if we're going to really be helpful in meeting the needs of others, then we need that insight into human nature. And we need to know what's going on in an individual. We need to know how to detect the ulterior motives in other people. And we're going to share this with you tonight in the second half. Now, the word deceitful, first of all, means misleading. It's the act of being led astray. In other words, a person's heart is, it functions just the opposite of God's principles. The natural inclinations of the heart are the opposite. If somebody wrongs me, what's my reaction? What's my impulsive reaction? To get even. <coughs> to strike back. If I do something wrong, my impulsive reaction is to cover it up. When God says what? If you sin what? Instead of cover it, what? Confess it. Or if I don't like myself, our impulsive reaction is to try to become like someone else that we admire, but what does God say? He wants us to what? Be ourselves. Become the unique individual he intended us to be. Or I don't like the authority over me. My impulsive reaction is to what? Get out from under it. And what does God say? Learn how to respond to the authority that he already knew was going to be over us. And as we begin to pick up these contrasts, we'll begin to see and expect and anticipate in another individual that this is the way they're going to function. This is the way they're going to act. I believe one of the sad things among Christians is our refusal to recognize that God is still in the process of conforming every one of us to the image of his son. Every one of us. But one of the great temptations is that once an individual has been a Christian for a certain period of time, now we start comparing him to Jesus Christ. And he's just so short of that standard. Whereas before, we knew where he was and we're praising God for where he brought him. Now, I don't have the insight as to what causes us to make the conversion. I've done it many, many times in my life. It's almost like as long as I felt I was bearing someone along and helping them and encouraging them, I was tolerant. But once they began to assert themselves with some spiritual stability, all of a sudden, I superimposed upon them a standard which they'd never measure up to, and so they never, ever came up to that standard, which produced in me what? A critical judgmental spirit, which was detrimental to my own spiritual welfare. Next, it means deluding. 
This is the impulse to justify and rationalize behavior when we are caught. When you and I get caught at something, we are just unique individuals in rationalizing and justifying and explaining it all away. We've got a reason for it, right? Especially, we, we learned this by our parents saying, why did you do that? Well, that's what we were waiting for, a chance to explain why. See, if they had said to you and me, what did you do? Now I've got to admit what I did. And if they say, why did you do it? They're giving me an out. That's far more natural for us. The next is cheating. This is trickery. The heart instinctively believes that if it does something wrong, it can do it and not get caught. <coughs> Other people aren't smart as I am. But if I did it, I wouldn't be as dumb as that guy on television. You know, what did he make that big boo-boo for? You know, what did he sign the check on a Sunday when the banks aren't open? I just wouldn't make those kind of mistakes. Now, to me, the subtlety is, you know where all this starts? Most of this, before it ever gets out into you and me actually offending someone else, it starts in our mind, psyching ourselves out that God isn't involved in my thoughts. He really doesn't know what's going on in my mind. And since he doesn't, since he, you know, he really isn't there involved, I'm really not that responsible. And the last thing is beguiling. A readiness to be imposed upon by the one deceiving, believing as factual that which is untrue. Probably the most obvious place this happens is at election time. Isn't it amazing that regardless of who the candidates are, if we thought both of them were crooks, we'd end up convincing ourselves that one of them was okay. Because his promises sound a little more sincere than the other guys. And of course, both guys know they don't plan to keep their promises. They want to get elected. And we haven't been able to see the distinction between a statesman and a politician. Now, there are men in politics who operate on principle. But if an individual is operating as a politician, then we can't be deluded. We've got to recognize that in his mind, the end absolutely justifies the means. Now, that is the way the heart impulsively or instinctively reacts. Now, we're given this progression of beguilement in Romans chapter 1, how beguilement takes place. Now, Satan has the capability of dropping any idea, and I believe it's basically through these channels. He can drop any idea into our minds without any particular frame of reference. And then we accept it as fact. We actually believe that it's true. Now, how did Satan, for example, beguile Eve? Let's look at that for just a minute. That's there. This is all in your notes. See, Satan had a strategy. First of all, he was immaculate in his appearance. We're told in Ezekiel 28, all the jewelry 
a fabulous, attractive individual. Girls would go for something like that. A guy with jewels all over him. He had the right setting and a beautiful garden. In other words, the atmosphere was right. Music flowed through him. We talked in the other seminar about he was the chief musician of heaven before the fall. And I hope that we can address ourselves to <laughs> some more things about music. And maybe you've uh, developed some ideas. But the mood was appealing. He preoccupied her with conversation. He actually convinced her that she was the most beautiful and most important woman in the whole world. See, once he got that undivided attention. Now, with all of that, then, if you recall, he checked her out to see what her frame of reference was. So what did he say? He said, did God say of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat? And Eve came right back. Oh, yes, he did. He said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the midst of the garden, the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Now, do you know why beguilement is the only way that you can get through to a woman? Because a woman is a controlled individual. In other words, once a situation is set in a woman's mind, the only way you can get a woman to change her behavior is to do what? Break her down. It's the only way you can get a woman to change her behavior. Break her down. How do you break her down? By talking to her. You find out what her frame of reference is. If she's religious, it's got to be the religious track. And just stay as religious as you have to stay. I had one boy make six appointments with me, and I knew the only reason he was making the appointment is he did not know enough evangelical jargon to keep this attractive teenage girl. And yet she was in love with him. And he was a non-Christian, and because their behavior wasn't on a par with God's standards, I said, you know what, if he has an ulterior motive, she was a beautiful girl. She went on to college and was a queen of the school. I said, look, you want to do business with the Lord. So, okay, so you have all this emotional attachment. If you start going in this direction for the Lord before you guys were going this way, do you know if you start following the Lord, your life's going to be better you're going to be a better individual for this man. But if he has an ulterior motive and you terminate the physical behavior, he'll lose interest in you. Oh, George won't. I know he really loves me. We've been gone together for a year and a half. I said, all right, it's worth it. You owe it to yourself just to find out. Ask his forgiveness for your failure to be the example of a Christian gal you should have. Terminate the physical behavior. Because, you know, when two people are engaged, your batting average is real small in talking them out of this type of thing. It's only happened five times in my ministry. 
And so I challenged her to start going in this direction with the Lord. And anytime he puts the pressure on you to compromise that conviction, to turn him down. So he makes a second appointment and she's getting more excited. She's trying to find out from me, is he, has he made a decision for the Lord? And of course, with every appointment, she reminds mom and dad about he's gone to see Larry again. Let's be praying for him. And I was aware that he wasn't making any spiritual progress, just building the vocabulary. And I kept driving at his responsibility to the Lord. And if an individual has an ulterior motive and you keep driving at their responsibility, they will quit coming to you. And when we talk about counseling and, and dealing with people a little later on, somebody's coming to you for the third and the fourth and the fifth time. You can be sure that they are not interested in permanent help. They want temporary relief. And you happen to be a release valve for whatever that ulterior motive is. Well, he canceled the seventh appointment. He also dumped her. And she called me six months later and said, Larry, I can't thank you enough for just taking that stand because I just heard today at school that George has a girl pregnant at school. And so... You've got to get on that frame of reference. Well, what did Satan do? Once he found out what Eve's frame of reference was, she was locked in to the commandments of Scripture. He had to get her off of that concept. He can't sit there and argue with her and say, no, God didn't really say that. God really didn't say, you will, you know, you'll die. What did Satan do? He just twisted the truth enough to show her that the consequences aren't as bad as she thought they would be. See, you won't really die. He shifted from God saying, don't eat, over to the area where you won't really die. The consequences aren't as bad as you think they are. So he turned the truth into a lie. And so she focused on the consequences rather than God's word, than God's commandment. <clears throat> now, beguilement resulted here when Eve focused on a secondary issue rather than the basic truth upon which she could have built her other conclusions. So from that point on, once she bought that lie, he created doubts about God's motives and the trustworthiness of his word. He convinced her that real intellectual honesty is to know good and evil. If you really want to be broad-minded, you need to know both sides of the fence. Another lie that's being perpetuated today. The cause of all kinds of concupiscence. You've got to taste the garbage to make sure that it's no good. And yet God's principle is that the closer you and I get to the light, the more sensitive we are to darkness the more discerning we are to what is, does not represent the heart of God. Now, here's what happens. And in Romans 1.18, we're given this whole sequel, this whole outline. 
This is in your notes there. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You see how important it is that when God says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, that that's exactly what God means? Or as we're told in Isaiah 58, if you will turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasures in my holy day, and make the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, not speaking thine own words, thinking thine own thoughts, doing thine own pleasures. And when you and I make God's thoughts and his words our words, that makes us pretty specific. That makes us pretty technical about things. But the freedom that God wants us to have in our Christian life is not based on how we feel or how we can jack everybody up. Where does the freedom come from? Ye shall know the what? Truth, and the truth shall make you free. I've known a lot of people to get excited or emotionally involved in something that was very exciting, which they equated with spirituality. Only to find that with that aftermath came a law or a void. And a lot of Christians are trying to live the victorious Christian life by maintaining this emotional, enthusiastic high. But it isn't there all the time. God will give us one of those highs, and all of a sudden, you know, if you're going up over the other side of the mountain, it's down. And the higher heights God wants to take us means a longer climb and maybe some longer valleys. And the high heights are just as normal as are the low lows. And so we need to find that truth that will give us the freedom, whether it's at that high or at that low. A man came to me some years ago. I don't think I shared this at the earlier seminar. Came to me, and he had been told because he was attacked by a young boy when he was nine years old. He went to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist asked this young fellow if he ever had any thoughts about this guy raping him. Now, do you know if something like that happened to you, unless you get amnesia, you will never forget it? And because two years later, and the father panicking over the situation, the father was a missionary, panicking over the situation, felt that with this kind of a traumatic thing, he, his boy would need counseling. So when these thoughts of this situation, and I'll assure you that if something like that happened to me, and you kept asking me every other week if I remembered it, I would never forget it. So the conclusion after a period of time was that this young man, unfortunately, is a latent homosexual. That was the diagnosis. When I met him, 
He was 52 years old, had been a missionary. His father, when he found out this whole situation and that this was the label that his son was given, disowned his son. I'll never have a son with that type of a situation. So that created problems. And as I was listening to this man tell me his story, there just were several things in the back of my mind that didn't make sense. One of them is married. Two was that he had four children. Three was that... Thank you. Was that um, when I asked him if he's ever had any desires to have a sexual relationship with another man. He said to me, are you kidding? And you see, all of those things pointed out that that idea that he was a latent homosexual was an absolute lie. Plus, we've got to go one more step. When somebody starts using the word latent homosexual, that is buying the world's evaluation of a homosexual. You know what the world says a homosexual is? That it is a state of being within an individual. They were made this way. That's an absolute lie. Homosexuality is an act. A sexual act with someone of the same sex not allowed by God. What's adultery or fornication? That's a sexual act with someone of the opposite sex not allowed by God. And that fornication or that adultery is not a state of being. It's a condition of one's heart that when that individual confesses that to God and confesses that to the individual and cleans up his heart, purifies his thought life, that individual is totally free inside. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you're as much a homosexual as I am a grandmother. He said, what do you mean? And I went on and explained what I just explained to you. And I said, you know, your whole life is a byproduct of beguilement. Satan planted that one idea in your mind. You didn't even really know what it meant, so you bought other people's definitions of it. And you said, I must be one, and since I am, and he'd been condemning himself for all these years, and that man just broke down and wept. A gal quit college, had a nervous breakdown. And when we talked together, she was a pastor's daughter from a town on the western side of Michigan, resort town. And when she was in junior high, she was riding a bike down the road, and someone stopped the car and jumped out of the car and started chasing her. And from that time, the fellow never even caught her. But from that time on, she started asking herself one question. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me that somebody would want to try to do something to me? What's wrong with me? And took that one isolated thought, put it in her mind, and began to build all the rest of her thoughts. 
You see, anybody whose life seems to be complicated, really complicated, you can be absolutely sure that the root of that is begotment. For I fear, 2 Corinthians 11.3, for I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve, so your mind should be corrupted from the what? Simplicity that's in Christ. In other words, beguilement produces complexity. Now, didn't I say beguilement was the world system? What is the world's evaluation of an individual? Life is what? So complex. As a matter of fact, if you have a PhD in some field, the field now is broken down into 25 subdivisions, and so if you've got a PhD in one of the subdivisions, you now are no longer qualified to be an authority in any of the other subdivisions, let alone in the field. Now, do you know why that is? Because society has to evaluate things on the basis of the external. Society doesn't understand the heart. All kinds of psychological systems to analyze personality. Most of them end up breaking the personalities down into four different kinds of divisions. There's, I don't know how many systems that say there are four different things. Yet God's word is very clear in saying there are seven frame of references through which an individual is motivated through one of those. Because God's word gives the insight into what's going on inside. And when we get into the spiritual gifts tomorrow night, uh, this will start to unfold for you. So that gal planted that one idea in her mind, what's wrong with me? A pastor's wife, whom I counseled, had undergone 50 shock treatments. Lived a very sheltered life as she was growing up. And when, in fact, she was so sheltered, and her husband, who was a pastor there, was with me when I was talking to his wife, and I said, you know, I really won't talk to you until you come and you sit through the seminar, and I want you to take notes. And I just want you to make notes on which areas seem to strike a chord. Now, this lady had been in and out of an institution most of her life. She's on drugs and just kind of half there. So I wasn't anticipating the seminar was going to solve her problems. I wanted the seminar to identify different areas, trigger different areas in her life. And I wanted her then to just write down what those areas are and how she explains away things and how she looks at everything. I said, if you can identify those areas, I'll stay a day later and we will sit down and we will go through every, as I was absolutely sure before I'd ask her any questions, that the root of her problems was begotten. And we would take every one of those erroneous thought patterns and counter them with scripture. And the interesting thing was that the few times when she really came back to reality, it was when she would latch on to a specific scripture verse. And she'd keep that in her mind. One was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And for about four months, she came back off the medicine. What does that say? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, 
Lean not to thine own understandings. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now that just became a solid anchor for her. And it was a frame of reference to keep her mind in control. Then all of a sudden, her mind started back to the other things. First time he ever kissed her, he kissed her on the forehead. Her question, in all sincerity, is, will I have a baby? That's a pretty sheltered life. And when she realized how little she knew, how little preparation she'd ever had for marriage, she started condemning herself. I can't do anything. My mother never taught me anything. I'm going to be a hindrance to my husband's ministry. And since I'm going to be a hindrance to his ministry, maybe if I would get out of his way, then he could go ahead and be the man God wanted him to be. I don't have time to take you through the whole sequel. But when she got done, there were five areas of her life. Bitterness that triggered one reaction. Resentment to God for her parents, which was another. Terrible self-image was another. And going back and then reconstructing from Scripture what God's thought patterns were to counter every one of those other counter thoughts that she had. And in less than a month, when she took those scriptures and then began to read them and study them, she now had that authority through this power of the Spirit to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and what? Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And in four weeks, she's off medicine. Hasn't been back on it. And when the temptation comes in because she's so susceptible to that beguilement, well, what happens, Satan will take that truth and turn it into a lie, just twist it into a lie. Once you and I take a truth and we twist it, the very next thing that will take place is that we will develop a negative reaction to it. We'll develop a negative orientation to the situation. So that we become ungrateful. See, if I say, you know, he is a wonderful, wonderful man, but, and then I tell you what he did, beat his wife. Now, both those facts are true. But if I just, no, but here he's asked his wife's forgiveness, the whole thing's over with, forgotten, forgiven. But I take that thing and I just leave it out dangling and he's still in that state of being. Just take the truth and I turn it into a lie. From that point on, my attitudes are going to be negative. So then what happens? I become vain in my imagination. From the spe Then I begin to speculate and to fantasize, start to imagine things. Now I'm going through these things because I want you... When we get to the end of this here in this session, I'm going to encourage you to start developing a library of situations of beguilement. We've even got you started on it there in, in your materials. But you go, I'll go to the newsstand and I'll just pick up Red Book, Woman's Day, 
And all I do is pick them up and I read what the captions are as to what they've got out front there to sell the article. And you can write down those captions on almost every single situation, which is almost pure beguilement. Pure beguilement. To take the truth of a situation, I had to go get some immunization shots last week, and Carol was sitting there waiting for me, and she picked up a magazine, and the title on the outside of the magazine was How to Cope with Guilt. So she flipped to the inside to see what it said. And she started reading, and she sa- it said there that if you want to get rid of guilt, the first thing you have to do is to find an authority figure that agrees with you. This is the answer. Psychiatrist writing this. If you, if you have some friends in your life who disagree with you, get rid of them and find those who agree with you. In other words, surround yourself with those who've got the same problem you have. But now there's truth to that. The truth is, if you want to get rid of guilt, you have to have an authority figure. Who is it? God. There's got to be an absolute authority figure who in all circumstances will probably disagree with you. (laughs) Depending on whose perspective you're looking. Like one friend of mine who found the Lord in jail. Missionary kept witnessing to him, and he got so tired of this missionary coming, he decided to get this guy off my back, I'm going to take this Bible of his, and prove to him he's wrong. He said, the further I read that book, I kept saying, brother, if what's in this book is true, I'm in deep trouble. (laughs) Because then the foolish hearts darken. We begin to operate on the emotions rather than the logic. We become conceited in our opinions. We're sure we're right. We can convince everybody that the way we're doing things is absolutely right. Have you heard of a church hassle recently? Hmm? Last year or two? Stop and just listen to what they're saying. How absolutely positively certain both sides are right. So the frustrations and the problems reflect the violated principles. Now, if this doesn't stop, then there are going to be far more severe consequences. Because we'll turn the truth of God then into a lie. And then, you know, when you and I start arguing with God, to have a personality conflict with God is a very bad thing. Because you're definitely going to lose. And we'll have the symptoms in our lives to illustrate this. And if it continues, we'll give our minds over to reprobation, which is to overthrow God's standards. Just to redefine them. Adopt a way of life that is comfortable to allow me to do what it is I want to do or what I've got my mind made up to do. Now, do you have any questions here? Larry, you said that one of the favorite tricks of Satan is to keep Christians fighting causes. Don't we have a responsibility as Christians to get involved in the issues, even though it isn't the best use of our time? 
my answer to that question is that there are a lot of things that we all get involved in that are good, but is, is it the best way to do it? Is it the best way to handle the situation? For example, for years, I used to try to approach, I used to kind of look for atheists because I felt that Aquinas' reasons for the existence of God would just annihilate anybody. Go back to first cause. And uh, I could win the argument every single time, and for years I never had one single person come to Christ. All I did was was in an intellectual confrontation, which is the only level he operates in. When I switched gears and said, I really don't care if you're an atheist, and I would say the same thing, I really do not care that you're a homosexual. I'm not nearly as concerned about the fact that you're a homosexual as I'm interested in knowing what caused you to become one. How long have you been one? I didn't tell you. Well, since I was six. See? Now, little boys experimenting, or little girls experimenting, isn't homosexuality. That's childish curiosity. But society says, ha, if you have ever done this, you are a latent homosexual. So the person buys that partial fact as the truth. Well, I am, and if I am, potentially, why fight it? Well, what is a homosexual? What is a latent homosexual? So they start reading all the information they can get on it. So this is what I am. By the time he has fed his mind with all that information, now his mind that isn't built to receive that wrong kind of information, begins to imagine, and the more one starts imagining, the more he's tempted to experiment. Then he gets in to the actual sin of homosexuality, which is the byproduct of having yielded to temptation. See? And most of the people who have been involved homosexually uh, maybe have been involved one or two or three times, are the ones who are at a perverted level. Most people that have had some homosexual involvement are not at a perverted level. And I can show you on the graph where they are. Because I've talked to many who are just overridden with guilt. I don't know how to break it. don't know how to get rid of it. Don't know how to clean up their thought life. Just had an individual in a, another city, a Christian worker, said, I heard you in, in September, and uh, I took what you said. You were given these steps and these outlines. I want you to know that I was a homosexual. I took these things. I made it right with the individuals that I've been involved with. I made it right with the Lord. I've begun meditating. And when I have been tempted... Why, I've turned my mind back to the Lord through music, and you know it works. Larry, how do you suggest that parents get involved in their school systems? Do they uh, just passively get involved or jump in with all four? What do you suggest? No, I'm saying that as parents, we ought to be involved at the level where we have in children. We ought to be involved. We ought to defend or stand up for what is right, as that which does affect me. Wherever, right? I think every every Christian ought to be a member of the local PTA. 
And uh, at the first church where I was, they were all standing back. None of it, none of the young couples were going to the PTA. So all of a sudden, when uh, I forgot even the word, but uh, what was that new sex training stuff that they came up? Yes, yeah, Sikas, and that all come in. Then all of a sudden, the Christians are rising up in fury. Now all of a sudden, they show up. There's no respect for them. See, they've already polarized themselves. And I believe that we ought to be involved at whatever level our children are and be involved in there so that we have that salt effect on this earth. What will salt do? It will preserve. Pardon? It will season. It will create thirst. Those are the three major things it will do. Well, if we're involved there and the Spirit of God indwells us. And so do you know what? In two months' time, we had 22 couples from our church who all became involved in the same PTA, where all of our kids are in school. Nobody's flexing any muscles or anything. If we come up to a vote on something questionable, we just vote. (laughs) But unfortunately, we have abdicated a lot of responsibilities uh, like that. But no, I... You know, I would have done the same thing. What I'm saying is where the thing has carried on, there's such a tremendous emotional drain and attention. Uh, that's why I'm working on, this has created in me some desires to, okay, how can we then go about and function and deal with our society and not get caught up and polarized in something I don't want to identify with? The first book that I would really like to write is a book on divorce. But that'd be the worst thing I could ever write on. Because if I chose, if I wrote on divorce first, from that point on, oh yes, he's the one who believes or doesn't believe. Well, see, I don't want that stigma. I would rather be identified with, oh yes, those insights are the things that will really help you grow in your Christian life. But I've had pressures to write in certain isolated areas or specialty areas. It would be the wrong step forward in order to come. Now, the point in time comes where you do identify your situation, your position, but then it's tempered in perspective rather than being polarized. I believe one of the manifestations of the Spirit is the discerning of spirits. And quite frankly, there's only been two times in my life where I have been in a situation to discern that something was demonic. Had another fellow on my staff that could pick it up like that. And when a situation like that would come, I would not deal with it. You see, I think, again, it's another form of begalement. When you hear the word demonic, the first response it usually emits in a Christian is alarm. The next thing we think of is somebody foaming and frothing at the mouth And in the name of Christ, through the power of his blood, we cast it out. Now, I don't believe that most demonic activity is that polarized, is that extreme. I think that is a very extreme type of situation. And that Satan's, you know, if the Spirit of God is not controlling me, who is? Satan is. And, uh, but I don't say that in the alarming way that, mm, I'm demon-possessed. See, 
If I'm afraid of something, God hath not given to me the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Now, I believe the spirit of fear is a demonic activity. Just as a sensual spirit, a critical spirit, a rebellious spirit, an angry spirit, an anxious spirit, none of those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They're the fruits of the other spirit. And I see that as a normal way that people operate in sin. I've known many people who have called me and have said, you know, because of your message, I have been freed from this or that. Or one person, you know, called, I've been healed. I didn't bother to ask them, well, how are you healed and so forth. The Spirit of God can heal. And I don't bother to analyze, well, was it some miraculous withered hand that was restored? Was it a psychological thing? Was it a spiritual thing? It's all immaterial. But by you and me taking the Word of God and claiming it and standing on the Word, Satan has no advantage. That's how Christ dealt with the temptations. Satan, it said, when he had exhausted every possibility, he withdrew till his next opportunity. And then Jesus left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And I just try to throw a real caution about um, taking some aspect of Scripture and making that a focal point and bring, building it into an alarming frame of reference. You know, into extremes, because I believe God has a balance to these things. In my own experiences... All of my experiences with demon possession has been with born-again believers. And uh, my first situation was a missionary. And uh, But again, see, I think it's semantics. Our theologians have broken it down into demonic influence, demonic control, demonic possession. And it sounds not better. But you see, the Holy Spirit is in our spirit. The only thing a demon can occupy is my body. And so uh, I don't see any theological contradiction. That's why I say it's semantics. And if someone says, I want to just call that demonic uh, control instead of possession, that's fine. I mean, I just, whatever it is, it's still there and happened that way. <laughs> now, one of my goals in this advanced seminar is to come to a certain point with these insights and quit spoon-feeding to maybe oversimplify a situation because I don't want to give us the impression that we've thoroughly exhausted a subject. I hope that we feel that when we conclude a lecture, we're just really beginning and that as we go into these different areas in the days ahead, you'll be motivated to get over into one area and dig in the Word a while. And, and that's how I enjoy working in the Word. Uh, some people like to take one subject and they'll run it all the way through. And we talk about spiritual gifts tomorrow, you'll know who those people are. But uh, there are others of us that have to have several irons in the fire lest we become bored or unable to concentrate. And so uh, I like to have a lot of projects on the burner. And the one that's got me motivated, I get into that, and I 
kind of get filled up all I can take, and then I shift gears and I move over into something else. And so, as we go through this, <laughs> I trust that we'll uh, have given you sufficient insight and some good handles, but some starting points to just go on and continue. So, take different situations and uh, think through how someone could beguile themselves. You get the flu. How many have had the flu in the last few weeks? Did you tell yourself you're sure you're going to die? Hmm? This is probably it. And you can believe that to the point that the worry over dying is what's going to keep you sick after the flu bug's passed. And so here is where I have to come back to the principle, whose body is it? The Lord's or mine? Carol just had major surgery in July. And she almost died and had post surgical shock the previous time. The doctor said, you got to go in right away. And I had a flittering thought that this could be it. And it immediately left, and I said, Lord, she's in your hands. She's your property. You have a complete right to do with her with what you want. And she felt the same way. And from that moment on, we were nothing but positive. She was out of the hospital in four days. And... uh you know, that wasn't the termination of her life. That's just one of five reasons why. Now, the reason I'm saying this is as you start getting a handle on these things, you're going to hear people talking about this all the time. You'll hear them with their negative, counter-biblical thoughts. And the more you begin to recognize the beguilement, the more when the Holy Spirit opens the door to say something you'll be able to share with them God's thoughts on the thing, and their response is going to be a new handle that I, well, I never thought of it that way before. And to be able to take the same situation and apply it to their lives. Depression. When you're really depressed, might as well give up. Is that how you feel? Give up. What's the use? And yet the Lord says the depression is my way of letting you know that right now you need to get all the closer to me because I'm in control. I'm bigger than the circumstances. And uh, as you do this, you can take some of the insights, put some scriptures down. Psalm 42 and 43 there. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. Self-worth, authority, offenses, guilt. We try to cover it up. Sex, serving God, ministries first. That begotten there is so subtle. Do you know why it's so subtle? Because one of our responsibilities is to serve God. And when a brand new Christian starts out serving God, there is a fulfillment in serving him. But you see, what's happened initially is he hasn't gone beyond the legitimate amount of time that he should be spending serving the Lord. That's why he's so fulfilled. But if he doesn't have a handle on priorities, the simplest thing in the world is to take the truth and turn it into a lie that the will of God is activity. Therefore, if I want more of God's blessing, I need to what? Serve him more. 
And once he goes beyond that bound, now my relationship with God starts to suffer. My relationship with my mate starts to suffer. So when there is guilt, if I don't come back and change it, then I'm motivated to compensate for guilt. How do you compensate for guilt? One of the ways is what? Serve him more. Be more active. And then the man, Satan has beguiled him and taken something that God led him to do, went beyond that bounds, and now that very twisted truth becomes his destruction. Social problems. Start imagining another person's motives toward you are negative and you start speculating. Didn't speak to me the last time. We want to be a leader, so we try to do everything to get ourselves up in the forefront. What does the Lord say? Be a servant. Serve the ones around you. We want respect. We demand our rights. God says you. We want prosperity by keeping everything we have. And God's principle is what? You give. Then it shall be given unto you. Now, this is just a, a starter. And then go back through the steps how to correct the beguilement. And this is in your notes. Recognize that beguilement is a direct attack of Satan. And then be sensitive to the channels through which Satan beguiles you. See, he can come in in all three, any three channels. For example, there are three kinds of sin in Scripture. If I try to apply God's solution to the wrong situation, it won't work. For example, if I'm having problems with lust and temptation, Scripture says we're to do what with youthful lusts? You're to flee them. Run away from them. That is not the chicken's way out. It's God's way. Other types of problems, see, those are the physical. The psychological problems from whence comes wars, what does he say? Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. You'd like to punch that guy back? Resist that temptation to do it. It's wrong. If you'll resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Somebody challenges the truth of God's word, God says argue with him, right? Serving the Lord must not strive, but be gentle toward all men, in meekness, opposing, or in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. So what does he say? We are to stand with our loins girt about with the truth. Anytime somebody disagrees with you over scripture, you explain it to them twice. If they still want to argue, you cease to defend the truth. For you can be certain he has a moral twist and he knows it. Titus 3.10. So I just cease to try to convince him any further. And you stand with your loins girt about with the truth. So if it's a challenge of truth, you stand. If it's a moral thing, you flee it. Get out of there. If it's a psychological thing, an argument, a resentment, anger, you resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So recognize what those channels are. 
Resist the temptation by turning our minds back to the Lord through music. And then by prayer, binding Satan in the name of Christ. Claim the blood of Christ for protection from fear. Identify the areas that were being beguiled and then take God's thought patterns, the scriptures, and rebuild our thoughts so that the next time we're tempted to think that erroneous thought sequence, we replace it with the same way God would think about that situation. Okay, let's bow in prayer. As we pray, we say, Lord, I realize that we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of it. And you and I can have that victory. For Scripture says, thanks be unto God who always causeth us to triumph through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know, as we internalize and we become more sensitive to what Satan is doing and how he's doing it, the Spirit of God will give us more insight into our own lives and then into the lives of those that he wants us to minister to. If there are areas where the thought patterns are going in the opposite direction of the Lord's thoughts, tell them what they are. Say, Lord, I need to rebuild and be specific. These different areas of my life so that I begin to see them through your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And Lord, as we become more aware of Satan's devices, Father, help us not to react to the symptoms, but rather to see beneath the surface of a situation and get to the heart of the matter, to see that individual's need of responsibility to the Lord. And so, Lord, keep us from becoming preoccupied personally in the irrelevant or the non-essential realizing we have but one life to live. And Lord, our prayer is that we number those days that we can apply our hearts to wisdom. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.